passage this morning, starting in verse 11, Luke chapter 7. Soon afterward, he, Jesus, went to a town called Nain. And the disciples and a great crowd went with him. And he drew near to the gate of the town. Behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a considerable crowd from the town was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion. And he said to her, Do not weep. Then he came up and touched the buyer, and the bearers stood still, and Jesus, he said, Young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak, and Jesus gave him to his mother. Fear seized them all, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people. And this report about him spread through the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. I can remember uh, a time it popped in my head when I was working on this lesson, and I I realized it it was kind of a funny thing. But back when I was in preaching school, in one class, and I don't even remember what the course was, but on that day, the teacher was not able to make it. And so Brother Jimmy Wood, and that may be a name that you know, maybe not. He's been gone a long time. But he was associated with the school, and he was known to be a little cantankerous, but very just a wonderful man. So he was filling in, and for some reason, we got off onto the subject of cremation which was kind of an odd thing. And so he was giving his opinion. He had several proof texts. And he just believed it was just the worst thing you could do. Because, and basically his argument was, if you are cremated and we take your ashes and scatter them to the winds, you're not giving God very much to work with when the resurrection comes. And uh, so one member of my class raised his hand, and, and Jimmy called on him. And he says, well... Have you thought about, what if you're swimming in the ocean, you get swallowed by a shark, and you pass through the intestinal tract, you'll come out something completely different than you were when you came in. What do you, what do you think God will do about that? And it, was, it really threw him for a loop. And so he had to stand there and, and uh, stammer a little bit about it and try to figure it out. And of course, I, I had to pop off and say something. And so I just said something to the effect of, well, when you're cremated, you just make an ash out of yourself. And he didn't appreciate it at all. I, I got a, a very cold stare. And the, the tire, that was at the beginning of the class. And for the entire class, every time he asked a question, I had something I wanted to say, I raised my hand, he would look completely the other direction. And I was toast from that point forward. What do you think about death? Death is a very interesting subject. It's not necessarily an encouraging subject, 
It's not uplifting to talk about death, but it's an, a, a reality of life. What do you think of when you think about death? Maybe you think about things like maybe the, the movie Princess Bride. Remember the Dread Pirate Roberts? Remember when he died? Well, not exactly. He was mostly dead, which meant he was partly alive. Maybe you think about the walking dead. Are they really dead? Hard to say. Do you know that Cornell University actually conducted a study back uh, about four or five years ago now, a serious study, funded and everything, to try to research and discover or determine where the safest place to be and survive during a, a zombie apocalypse? I know you're wanting to know, where is it? Because <laughs> what if it happens and we need to know where to go? Well, as it turns out, the Northern Rockies is the safest place uh, in America to go to during a zombie apocalypse. And why did they determine that? Zombies don't like to climb mountains. Very interesting. What does it mean to die? To be dead? How often do we go to a funeral and we, and somebody's going to say it. Somebody always says it. That's not really them. That's just their body. That's just the shell. The real them is somewhere else. Right? Don't we say that? They've been separated. They're gone. Where did that idea come from? I can tell you, it didn't really necessarily come from Scripture. The idea that when we die, somehow our bodies and our spirits and souls, uh, we leave this temporary thing we weren't supposed to be in to begin with. It's just this shell. And we go off and we wait for the end of time. You know? That didn't come from the Bible. That comes really from pagan Greek philosophy. That's what the philosophers believe. Like many things, there's just enough truth in it to sound right, but it's not exactly right. There is a dimension to separation, but that's not the definition. It, is there a, a mere temporary arrangement? Does death serve to finally separate the spirit from the physical? Well, Homer, in, a, in his Odyssey, which was written right about the time that Isaiah was written, he had this to say. He said, life leaves the white bones and the spirit like a dream, flits away and hovers to and fro. Plato said, death, as it seems to me, is actually nothing but the disconnection of two things, the soul and the body from each other. So in this thought process, the dead are merely souls who have been released from their temporary embodiment. Well, the Hebrews disagree in the Old Testament. And Hebrew thought the body is never separated from the soul. When a person dies, there is a connection between the spiritual and, and the soul and the physical that is never broken. So when you go down to Sheol, the idea was the body and the spirit went together. Just think about how difficult it is for us. We have this 
Greek-influenced thought about the separation. When we go to passages like Genesis chapter 1, chapter 2, in Genesis, when it talks about when, uh, when God tells Adam and Eve not to eat the fruit from the tree of life, because on this day when you do it, you shall surely die. What's the debate there? What do we normally debate and try to figure out? Did they die spiritually? Or did they die physically? Because we've been so influenced by this way of thinking, we have to ask that question. But the Jews never asked that question. Because, well, if you ask them the question, do they die spiritually or do they die physically? Yes. Both ideas are there all the time. In the New Testament, the body is not a temporary, disposable feature of life. It's the object of the resurrection. If, it's, if death means separation, that's all it means. Then what was raised when Jesus died on the cross and the the veil of the temple was ripped in two, and there was an earthquake. And what, what else happened? The dead came out of the graves. So are we to believe that someone went somewhere and found their souls and their spirits, because they're hovering around somewhere else, brought them back to the grave, and put them back inside the bodies, and then opened it up for them to come out? No. There's an integration, an inseparable dimension. Now, is it legitimate to talk about separation? Yes. But the physical death doesn't, it's not the same thing as, it's not defined as separation. In other words, death is the cause of separation. But it's not synonymous with it. It's like you throw a ball. And when you throw a ball, we say the ball flies through the air. Well, throwing causes flying. But throwing is not flying. It's not the same thing. One causes the other. So when you die, is there a separation? Yes. But it's not a complete, total separation. There's a connection. So when we are expecting our resurrection at the end of times if you're if you're in the grave your body's not going no one's going to search around in the netherworld to find your soul and then go back and put you back in your body so is there a difference between our resurrection body and our physical body now yes but it's still the same body jesus when he was raised from the dead they were recognized him because it was still him but there was something different about it, it had been transformed and so the perishable becomes imperishable. But it's the same body. New and improved? Different? Maybe not as old or as heavy? Something about it different than today? Yes. But it's still your body. So here's this passage where somebody has died. So when we understand that this person was dead, completely dead, not mostly dead, 
not partly dead, but completely dead. Now, what's really interesting in this passage that you may not have noticed is here, sandwiched between all these teachings of Jesus and the miracles of Jesus, there is no request. No one comes to him to ask him to do anything. No one says anything to him. In fact, no one says anything to Jesus at all. He is simply on his way and notices a funeral. There's no expression of faith. There's no controversy involved. There are no preconditions to anything. Not even a comment by Christ at all in this passage. He is simply standing there, sees a funeral, and walks up and touches the funeral buyer, which is like a casket. Now this entire section, at least from chapter 5 on through chapter 8, it's all framed around the concern that Jesus has about how people listen to him and what they do about it, which usually they fail. And one thread running through it is this picture of Jesus on the move. In fact, uh, there's some distance between Capernaum, where the servant of the centurion was healed, and the town of Nain. It would have taken a good long while to travel that. And so some manuscripts actually tell us that it was the next day. But it was during the same journey, same things, a whole section all goes together. Clearly engaged in ministry. Luke tells us the boy was dead. He was dead. What does it mean he was dead? He was a dead person. And there are two different words used in this passage for dead. This one really has the idea that he was completely dead. But when Jesus, looking for the word where it says the second time, the dead man in verse 13, it says the dead man sat up. It's another word. It's a different word. He was a corpse. There's some effort here in this passage to really emphasize that fact. This was a completely dead man. And a corpse. The person that we would walk into and say, that's not really him. He's somewhere else. That corpse sat up when he was told to do so and was alive again. He wasn't mostly dead. He was dead. And he was the only son of the widow. The exact same word spoken about Jesus. It says literally, he was her only begotten son. Which makes it even sadder. Because here is this widow, maybe with no hope of having any more children ever, and her only son is gone. Completely dead. 
there's a definite Elijah connection to this whole section. It runs throughout Luke. Now, the Gospels highlight mostly the connection between John the Baptist and Elijah. But Luke also connects Jesus to uh, Elijah. And as Jesus is traveling through this part of Judea, performing miracles and teaching, he is literally paralleling the ministry of Elijah. And if you went back to 1 Kings and read Elijah's ministry, you would find the same order of things. Elijah healed Naaman. Well, who's Naaman? He was a commander. He was a soldier. Jesus heals the servant of a soul. Elijah heals a widow's son. Jesus heals a widow's son. But the details are not exactly the same. So Elijah was literally projecting uh, the ministry that Jesus was going to perform when he got here. It was a type of Christ. Jesus was on his way busily conducting ministry. Along the way, he heals a servant of a centurion, happens to notice the funeral, no one seeks him out, no one sends anyone to contact him. He simply saw a situation and an opportunity. A young man was dead. They were on their way to bury him. And Jesus, on his own initiative, without any comment, without any teaching, without consulting anyone, without any debate, simply approached the funeral buyer, touched it, and raised it from the dead. Well, that's an interesting word, that he touched it. It it really means that he grabbed hold of it. He put his hand on it. And they stopped. Well, what God does in the world, God's workings, it's not limited to us summoning him, if you think about it. God isn't waiting for us to ask him to do something before he does it. It's not contingent on our desires. He's not waiting around for us to give him permission to exercise his authority. He is a God who is living, active, directly involved in this world, in our lives. The word authority does not appear in this passage. But that is exactly what it's about. The authority of Jesus, even over the dead. I like what... uh, Austin Spark says about the works of Jesus. He says that all of the work of the Lord Jesus goes for nothing if it does not result in life. It is not the teaching of Jesus, although that's important. It's not what Jesus did, although that's important. It is the result of all that he said and did and was. That is the crucial. The proof of the Lord Jesus is in the life which results from everything to do with him. That is both a statement and a test of everything that we know and have to do with in relation to him. In other words, 
even death is not an obstacle. But what about us, though? Think about this. What about us? Are we mostly dead? Mostly alive? Have we allowed our walk of faith to degrade and decline almost to the point of no return? Have we allowed ourselves to follow Jesus at a distance? Just enough to feel alive, maybe just alive enough that we don't feel dead, but not really. If you're mostly alive, you might have just enough of a feeling of security that you don't want to draw too much attention to yourself or risk having to become more alive, maybe truly alive. Jesus sees us. Are we like Huckleberry Finn, attending our own funerals? What will happen when Jesus gets hold of us? Are we asking him to heal us, raise us from the dead? What do we want? What do we need from him, Christ? I know what he wants from us. Can you hear the words? Maybe it's your name. He's saying to every one of us and all of us at the same time, to the church, arise, live. Jesus has the authority, the right, the power to command us to live, to demand it, to expect it. Are we his church or are we not his church? Are we his people or are we not his people? Be alive. Come alive. Plug in. Find a place. Create a way where there is no way. No, be, do. Be faithful. Be loyal citizens. These are things I've been saying over and over and over again. These are the characteristics of a living church. Jesus did not have the mission of bringing comfort to a widow with a dead son. The mission was to make him alive. What did Jesus say in John chapter 10, verse 10? Why did he even come? It's all about life. It's all about life. What does it mean? It's not a promise uh, for you to have a, a long, happy life. It's focused on not our agenda, but God's agenda. Not our self-interest. It's not a promise of your prosperity or your quality of life, but it is a God agenda to make his people, his church, a full living reality 
in a dying world. Satan wants us to die. Jesus wants us to live. But not for ourselves, for him. They were filled with awe and amazement. Well, you know, the previous passage, Jesus was the one who was amazed when he saw the faith of the centurion. Now they're amazed. Now they're in awe. God wants to visit. You know what it says? God has come to visit us. That's what they said. That's another, another one of those words that has a little more to it than just the surface. It has the idea of care and concern. In fact, it's the same root word as a root as a word we use for elders, Episcopals. God has come to shepherd us. God has come to guide us. God has come to help us. That's what we have to understand. God has come to help us. If he wants this church to come alive and begin to reach the community, he's going to do it with living people. Alive. The only option we really have is to do it with him or die. Do you all know uh, there's a congregation near here that's no longer here? Ceased to be. Folded up. Close the doors. They're dead. I, it would break my heart to see this congregation die. We have to be more than mostly alive. We've got to be alive. Alive for him. You're either dead or you're alive. But you cannot remain mostly dead or mostly alive, partially either one, for long. There is no middle ground. I think it's interesting that the Bible literally calls us to die. To die to ourselves and live for him. Death has no dominion in Christ. It cannot. This is the call. Arise and live because he lives. The word there when he tells the young man to arise is the exact same word the people use when they say a prophet has arisen among us. And it's Jesus who wants us to rise. You want to live? Really live. Then die. Jesus raises us to life. It's the same for Christians and for those who want to be Christians. Maybe you are already a Christian. Most of you are. Maybe you're not. Maybe some of you are not. You can't live until you die. Die to yourself. Be baptized. Be raised in Christ to live. Arise and live. Stand and arise. And that's all we do right now. We stand and we sing. Respond if you feel the need.